0: Welcome to the PhD in Parenting podcast, the podcast where we talk about being a parent in academia and an academic at home. We're your hosts. This is Judith. And I'm Erin. So in this episode, we're really thrilled
1: to be hosting our very first guest, LaToya Falk. She's a scholar, a mother, and a writer who's currently an instructor in composition and rhetoric, as well as a graduate student in the MFA program at the University of Mississippi, or as it's called, Ole Miss. Um, LaToya, I'm really glad to have you here. Thanks so much for joining our show. Hello,
2: and, and thanks for having me.
1: So we know LaToya from our studies at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan. Um, I know, LaToya, you and I were in a lot of committees together. I remember just having these like meaningful conversations like at the copy uh, room and having uh, questions about pedagogy. And we traded some books and resources. I even remember going to some different lectures and films with you. And I really do miss that space. Um, and I'm really glad that Udit has suggested this podcast for kind of replicating that space. Um, but so I know you from Wayne State University, but Latoya, I wondered if you could walk us through your academic journey a bit. You know, our listeners have kind of heard a lot about Udit and I's past and our studies, but I wondered what had brought you to Wayne State University. What type of research and teaching did you work on while there? And of course, where are you now and how? This is a loaded question, so this might take a bit. How does your work, your research, and your life intertwine with your maternal duties and all the other things that you like to do?
2: Sure. Um yeah, I I re- remember the time we spent at Wayne um and yeah, it was a really a really nice um collective space in terms of just moms getting together and just talking about um our shared experiences. So I worked at Wayne State from about 2011 to 2014, so not very long. This was my first full professional academic job after finishing graduate school at Michigan State. Much of my research at the time was centered around voice and helping students understand tone and style in academic classrooms across different situational contexts. Um, I believe that first-generation college students are students with rich cultural backgrounds that were often in opposition with the language of the academic the academy didn't have to be dissolved or their home languages didn't have to be dissolved or their home language, languages and identities didn't have to be dissolved in order to assimilate into the university. And so I, I believe there was tremendous value in my students' home discourses, whether those discourses were bilingual or dominated by AAVE, African-American vernacular English and that you could write well and be successful writers in academia without having to always dismiss your language and identity for this dominant, you know, oftentimes esoteric ap- academic lexicon. Yeah, but, but you know, also, a lot of the Black language scholars, like, talk a lot about this soul-crushing and soul-debilitating experience of being told the language of home, that language you know, that oftentimes anchors you and keeps you alive, that that's very sort of important to you, um, isn't welcome. And oftentimes it's perceived as not welcome and not good enough in the ivory Towers. So, um, so I taught first year composition and I also worked with the summer bridge program that supported low income and first generation college students during the summer and fall term. A big component of the job was writing assessment, um, because when I was hired, the department was ushering in a uniformity by implementing the shared curriculum for all writing courses. And so I worked in a group of faculty um, to create curriculum, implement that curriculum. So we were creating learning outcomes and testing out those outcomes and revising them and assessing writing and assigning papers or, you know, doing assignment design, but also mentoring other instructors. Um, And when I think about the curriculum that we use, what I was really fond, fond of was the ways in which the curriculum really taught and showed our students how to think critically about their home literacies in conjunction with the literacy practice that were accustomed to their chosen disciplines, or that were um very much sort of adopted and, and 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 subscribed to by the disciplines that they had chosen and so in my classes, we read and talked about writers like Amy Tan and Richard Rodriguez and Elaine Richardson and versan Young, and of course, Bell Hooks.
1: That sounds amazing. Um, everything you're saying kind of speaks to my ethos. And that's what I really liked about being on some of those composition committees with you, um, because I feel like I was one of those um, teaching assistants that you kind of offered mentorship from. And I even remember, it's a funny memory, but I have these of graduate school. I told you I'd started crying in class about something we read. And I remember you actually pointed me towards um, something that Bell Hooks had written about using like pathos in, in the classroom. Room and mm-hmm. you were like, it's okay. You know, but I was like, yeah. kind of like, it was a really weird moment for me, but I had been reading, um, actually it was a poem by Langston Hughes. And I remember it's, it was just this image of, um, an old woman, a washer woman who had been washing all the clothes to kind of make this better life for her kids. And I just got really choked up, um, reading it during class. And I remember you kind of like gave me the essay and told me it was okay to like show emotion. Like I don't have to be this robot. Um, and yeah. what you're kind of saying about home language, that's just so important in today's, um, contemporary context, but also because I too work with a lot of first gen students um, who are usually bilingual, um, but also with the use of AAVE and you know, people kind of I understand young writers, it's already kind of a weird I have a lot of new first year writers that don't like writing or have been told they're not good at it, maybe because of their home language or because of the way they write and speak. So I really, um, I really highly regard what you're saying about all that. Um, And so your time was spent well at Wayne State. um, And so you said that was for about three or four years at Wayne? Yeah.
2: And I'm I'm very grateful for that experience because, you know, not only did we meet each other, but it it really gave me um a lot of sort of you know unique and interesting experiences that really helped inform my teaching practices so like at Wayne was where i was formally introduced to writing about writing and writing across the curriculum and genre studies um and i have since then often leaned on that scholarship to inform my teaching.
0: That's really great. I feel the same. I felt the same way. I, when I was, uh, when I was at Wayne, it was sort of the first, the first time that I was introduced to the um, writing about writing um, approach as well. And I, I also felt that it was a, a great way to sort of um, meet the students where they're at and then work with them to, you know, to understand uh Just the different communities and discourse communities and what what they can do to be able to enter, um, enter those other discourse communities and that they weren't necessarily that they didn't need to think of those as like closed off. Um, Yeah. I uh, you know uh just because they were you know not already familiar with with some of the language or the genres or um whatever um so I that's re- I think that's really great have you taken so you said you've taken that uh into the into your current position a little bit as well too are you willing to share a little bit more about where you're at now
2: Yeah absolutely so I'm right now um as Erin said, I'm teaching at the University of Mississippi. And I I do, I draw on that scholarship, especially the scholarship on AVE and students' rights to, to their own language, um, but also like writing about writing and genre studies to get students thinking about just the contextual ways in which writing presents itself to students um, by way of like the various assignments that they're being asked to do. And so I also tutor students on this side. And so I'm um, I'm oftentimes really, you know, committed to getting students to think about like genre and what the genre is oftentimes asking of you as a writer. So, so yeah. Right. Um and, and you know, in terms of my maternal journey when I came to Wayne, you know, this was like what nearly 10 years ago, I actually was was pregnant. I already had, you know, at the time, a son who was seven or eight at the time. Um, and I had come into the position at Wayne right after graduation. Um, and it took me a while to find a job. And so we were in a bit of like an economic desert. And we were, I mean, it was it was a struggle. Like we had, you know, some bouts of homelessness and... There was a time where me and my son were sleeping in my car. And so, you know, a friend had offered us a place and, you know, we were living in hotels. And so right before the job at Wayne, I had finally found myself in an apartment where we essentially had, you know, very little furniture. Um, And, you know, that job at Wayne was significant because it meant for me economic stability and mobility. I mean, it was it was key in that regard. So my partner, my partner at the time um, who was in and in and out of Detroit, sort of like back and forth from New York, um, he was vehemently um, opposed to the pregnancy. I mean, he did not want the baby. And so, um, you know, I had aunts and some Christian friends who, who didn't want me to terminate the pregnancy. And I remember my partner saying you know, all these people who are telling you not to abort the child, um, and that this was sort of a despicable and immoral act, you know, he would say things like, well, can you count on them to be there with you through this pregnancy and help you raise this kid? And I remember that day. So clearly, because it was that moment, after he said this, that I felt, you know, and and, and in a lot of ways knew, they didn't have any business sort of bringing another kid in the world. And so I and so I did, you know, I had an abortion, my my first and only abortion and um and I remember that time in our department because I don't know if you guys recall this, but there was like a new baby being born like every
0: year. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like it
2: was like the baby boom era in our department. <laughs>
1: We're yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, it was everyone. yeah. There was like everyone was. I mean, we were just talking about this because yeah. I myself, I think I got like baby fever because that's. <laughs> I was like, what, what? You have you're having a fourth baby, and I'm like, well, everywhere, you know. It was like, I mean, there had to be like probably five graduate students or six, and then there was several of the um, lecturers, which again, we kind of all worked together. It wasn't like the stark division between graduate teaching assistants and lecturers. I thought we all kind of
0: worked together, but. That was yeah. definitely, that was definitely a boom. I remember that too. My daughter was born in 2012, in the summer of 2012. And so, and I know that, you know, quite a few um, friends had, have kids that are just a little bit younger. You know, there's a whole bunch, Aaron, that are, you know, where the, where the daughters are closer to your age. Um, So yeah, definitely a little bit of a boom. That must've been hard.
2: Yeah. You know, it was. It was, it was a good time, but I remember like, and I never told anyone about this. So I was, you know, in a lot of ways, like grieving this growing life I had reluctantly sort of eradicated from my body due to circumstances and yet getting up every morning and nurturing like other people's children, right? These young adults who I'd been stationed to teach, but also like wanting to be in celebration with my colleagues who were gleefully expecting
0: Mm -hmm. Right.
2: Um, So it was, yeah, it was, it was interesting.
0: I'm going to switch gears just a little bit, if that's okay. Um, We've both spoken uh, on this podcast about um, feeling the pressure to be the best at what we're doing and to somehow, you know, fearing that our identities as mothers might eclipse that as scholars and or that we're seen as less dedicated to the academy because of the fact that we're also um that we also have children. Um and I think when when you and Aaron first started talking about this a little bit, you said that you found that sentiment relatable and have felt that pressure the same way. Um and to kind of have felt pressured or that that has sometimes led to overcompensation or overworking and overachieving. Um, and I'm wondering, um, if you can speak a little bit to whether or not you feel that those pressures are, um, whether you feel those pressures even more, um, as a black woman and a single mother in the Academy or now you are a single mother. I take yeah. it. Yeah. Um, I, I so, yeah. Yeah.
2: I did and I I could relate to Aaron in terms of like overcompensating and um and really just doing more um and you know as a black woman you're already dealing with this heightened desire to achieve and be successful in the academy and you fear being cast as the affirmative action hire so you overcompensate you give more of your time than you should and you don't take the time to meet your own health needs because you're so caught up with seeking validation from this intellectual space. As if that validation, you know, as if that validation assures you that you're you're smart enough, or that you're good enough, or that you belong there. And I know that's how I felt, and I can't speak mm-hmm. for others, but that's exactly how I felt. And I remember at the time I was really struggling with just feeling this sort of intellectual inferiority, and my partner was like, you know, you don't have to prove you're smart. You are, just be what you are. Um, but it didn't matter what he said or whether he thought that was good enough. I wanted that validation from the Ivy Tower. So in seeking that validation, you know, you say yes. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah, you <laughs> say yes to unpaid projects, right? You, yeah. you say yes to committees that you know you shouldn't, you know, do because it takes you away from your family. It takes away from your children.
0: Um, but I also,
2: yeah, but I also think that like, academia, man, it's rigorous, and it's, it's highly competitive and p- competitive in these ways. Um, so, so yeah, and I, like, I, like, I want to, I want to be honest here, because I, I do feel like that oftentimes, in, in our honesty, like we, we help others. And, and as a, you know, as a black woman, in academia, you know, dealing with so much at home, so many sort of calamities at home. I remember feeling like my academic work was my escape. So what happens yeah. is that you literally sort of like break off into pieces. I mean, you, you break apart into these multiple dimensions of self where you never ever really present like your full self. And so, I mean, for me, this was my coping me- mechanism. And so I, I felt like I was living this like perpetual to-do list. You know, where it was like, okay, do get get this done. Great. Take out the trash. Make sure the kids eat. Feed the kid, you know. And excuse my language, but like, you know, fuck your partner. You know,
0: make sure he's <laughs> right. taken
2: care of. And 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 I don't think I was ever fully present because it was always like, get it done. Get it done. Right? Right. Um, and a lot of the like emotional uneasiness and the pain and a lot of the, the things that I was dealing with, you just push them down. Like you literally right. just push him down and you actually start to compartmentalize things. And so I knew that when I got out of work and, you know, I took my commute home um, after working in the office all day, like I picked up my son from the after school program. We had dinner. He did his homework. He went to bed. And when he went to bed, the professional Latoya re Reemerge, right? I I got back up. I graded. I, I I prepared for lectures and checked emails and and so I think you get into this sort of rhythm where, you know, you you do you feel like a robot. You 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 literally do.
1: That really um, resonates with me. I remember leaving early for class. <laughs> Because I would lie and I'd tell people I needed to be there at like four. I didn't have class until 630 uh, because that was a special awesome. space for me. I know. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I've got to leave. i got to leave. Um, and then this kind of like breaking off into pieces, you know, and I also something you said about the next committee, another committee, and I remember Signing up for everything because I had the sense that like it might help me later in my career path, which arguably perhaps it did, but it is it's like this like super competitive um, field we're in. And, you know, I was an older student who already had kids. I also was not an English major when I started this, so I always felt like I was three steps behind. People would be like, oh, Foucault, you know, Foucault and uh, Derrida. And I'm like, wait, how do you spell that? <laughs> you know, and what do you mean? You know, like, I don't know, post-structuralism. Po- and so I always felt like I was like a little bit behind. I felt like I was a little bit older. And so I'm like, you know what, I better just um, make sure to really have this strong resume and this strong curriculum vitae. And so, oh, yeah, I'll be on that committee and I'll do that pilot program. And so that really resonates with me as well. And I remember, you know, my husband at the time, like, well, well, he's still my husband. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) He was like, you know, really, really, you have to do this other thing now? I thought you only taught class on like Tuesdays and Thursdays. or like, really? What's you have to do something? I remember we volunteered for a conference that was being held um, at Wayne State. I remember that. You did because we drove together and my driving scared you. Oh, yeah. um, It was like, well, this is an 8 a.m. We need to get there to the ASAP. It's being hosted in Detroit. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity. It's just like another thing and another thing. And then that, with like, of course, all the child rearing um, and all that good stuff. So a lot of what you're saying, I can really relate to, but then coupled with these other pressures that I think are quite different that I have not. Um, experienced. So I really enjoy talking with you and you did and we've talked about kind of finding this comfort in a community of women and scholars. And that's why I think that time at Wayne State was so like special and precious to me. Um, And we find solace in scholarship that kind of maybe echoes our own experiences of maternity. Um, And I think we've kind of brought some of that to this podcast because I was feeling pretty isolated for the last couple of months, um, definitely with, with everything going on. But I wanted to kind of ask you if you have found scholarship that you feel like addresses your experiences as a black woman, a scholar, a single mother, and um, if so, who are some of those writers or is there um, more work to be done? Um, and so I wanted to ask you, uh, you had an essay that you shared with me, but are you finding uh, scholars that, that seem to resonate with you that have similar experiences?
2: I have, um, but I've also had to dig really deeply right. to find these scholars. Um, and And I can actually share... How I found the black scholars um, who were talking about women of color, in particular, who were navigating academia. Um, it was around the time where I realized that, like, man, I need to see a therapist. Like,
1: I, <laughs> I, that. I
2: need, to, I need to go and talk to somebody. <laughs>
1: Here and
2: then I came across this um, obstacle
1: because
2: the way my insurance worked, it was just, it was just a situation where. The, the, the cost was just too much for me, at least. And so I said, well, I can't afford therapy, but I've got this, you know, access to this library database. I'm going to use this library database to complete research and, and heal myself or, or to find ways to heal myself through the scholarship. And so the first book that actually came to me was an anthology called "Presumed Incompetent," and this is um, an anthology that actually just 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 the second edition was published like a few months ago. But the first edition I had and I coveted it. Um, this is um, by a bunch of scholars, um, and I can you know I, I can't think of the name off the bat in terms of like the editors, but I'd be happy to share that with you guys. Um, There was also another anthology called Available Means, which centers women's rhetoric. And so this was a collective. So it wasn't just black women. It was just a bunch of women just talking about their lives and domestic work and domestic spaces and how they were inhabiting domestic spaces, but also leaving the home and pursuing you know, um, professional jobs or professional pursuits. And there's one particular essay in the anthology *Available Means* by bell hooks, which is called "Home Space: A Site of Resistance." Um, and that essay sticks with me because she talks about the ways in which Black women, in particular, use the domestic space to create these safe spaces and these places of of refuge for not just their children but for themselves and other women. Um, The to William White's piece, um, Seeking Emancipation from Gender Regulation, Reflections on Home Space for a Black Woman Academic Single Mother. I mean, I finished reading that piece and I, I, I cried because so much of what she was talking about spoke to my experiences, particularly when it comes to the the gender performance, what it meant to be a woman and, and to perform um, in terms of like, you know, the ways in which the sort of dominant gender notions just rest upon our bodies, right? Um, but also like being the primary breadwinner in the home and not feeling supported and um, this sense of like, being the first in your family to, to pursue an advanced degree, um, but also this idea that, like, that pursuit meant that you were somehow emasculating the Black man. Um, and so her article really just, it resonated with me on so many levels, and I was so appreciative to have found it.
0: I really um, enjoyed reading about this idea of the of the home space, too, um, and the way that um, resistance is, is formed. I'm actually, um, I was familiar with, uh, with, bell hooks work on that as well. So I I do find that this is a really, uh, really helpful, um, concept, um, for, for all of us that are mothers, I think, um, in, in this context and, and specific. And so I was uh, wondering a little bit, you know, there's, we've all heard the saying, it takes a village. Um, and so I was wondering, um, from, from the same or from, from other work in that area, I'm also familiar with sort of the idea of the other mother and um, community uh, child rearing in African-American communities. So I was wondering um, if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about uh, the extent to which maybe the you've been able to, is that something that um, you've been able to rely on? Was there, um, if you're saying, you know, there's this idea that, you know, being in academia is emasculating for the black man did you find um, resistance in in your within your community within the larger community where you're able to rely on other um, women, other family members, you know, with childcare a little bit? And if so, and this is sort of like a longer question now, um, how has we keep, Aaron and I keep talking about the quarantine and the COVID outbreak? How has that maybe impacted your access to this community?
2: Yeah. Um, that's a good question. I, so I come from a working class family and it's not to say even with that, with that, with that pregnancy where, you know, I essentially had an abortion that my family would not have been supportive. I just know that in order to get that support, I had to go home.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. And I graphic location.
2: Yes. (laughs) And I had left home and for, 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 for reasons, um, for good reasons. And I, I just, I could not return. I did not want to return. And so, and even to this day, like I miss Michigan. I, I think about, you know, what it would mean for me to move back home daily because there's family there. And, you know, at this point in my children's lives, like they don't know my family the way I wish they, they, they did know them. Um, because we, we live in Mississippi and and it's really far from Michigan, which is where my family's from. Right. Um, I think that it is, it's critical for us as mothers to find spaces in academia where we can come together and get support and lean on one another. I think it's crucial. Um, But I also like, don't always think, especially for women of color, you know, for us, like we're, we're usually like the only one in the department. And if we're not the only one, there's like two or three of us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so like where I, where I do see places where I've established solidarity is with just mothers or like women who actually come from working class backgrounds who who understand like the struggle of being the first in your family to get an advanced degree and to pursue um, the sort of rigor of academia. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there's enough of those support systems or enough talk about um, institutions that actually center families as cornerstones to the academic work that gets delivered, right?
1: No, that's something that I can relate to really well. But also from um, reading closely uh, William White's essay, um, I found it really telling and it revealed a lot to me. And I think it's important as an ally and as a Caucasian woman, I I was very moved by what was there, but it was revealing to me, right? These are a lot of things that I haven't had to tackle um, in my career, although I wanted to sign up, sort of jump back to that, because there were a lot of um, quotes in there that I could relate to. Uh, And one quotation says, structurally, the academy is a space shaped by traditional Eurocentric and masculine notes vis-a-vis white male faculty with stay-at-home spouses who support their work. Female professors, on the other hand, typically remain single or married and childless. Um, And obviously, this isn't the case for um, the three of us in that we have children, but I wanted to speak to that idea that like having that person at home to support their work. And then she follows it up a little bit later by saying there's very little research about single black women in academia and or single black mothers in the academy. So I just wondered if you wanted to speak to any of those um, parts of the article. I thought they were interesting, but also it seems like she's writing about what you are experiencing firsthand.
2: Yeah. And I would agree with that sentiment. As a matter of fact, I remember at Wayne, I mean, most of my, my colleagues who were white women were married and That's, I wasn't,
1: you right. know? That's true.
2: And it's true here too, even at the University of Mississippi.
1: <laughs> right.
2: Um, And so, but I will say, like, I'd like to believe that the department that I'm working in here is very family friendly. Um, And I think that has a lot to, to, to do with like, like, not to say that this is not the case in the North, but in the South, there seems to be a value to family culturally that embeds itself into the work environment. And, um, I do, I get a lot of support. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't always like to rely on it because I feel like I I would rather, you know, be around, you know, family, but like my colleagues here do give me a lot of support. I, I think that like, Cause, cause I do, I have two kids and, you know, with the partner who I, who I spoke of earlier, like we do actually have a daughter together and, um, you know, unfortunately he has not been supportive as a matter of fact, you know, he goes out of his way to let me know that pursuing an MFA, which is like, like I'm in an MFA program right now, like the pursuit of it for him, you know, makes me a neglectful parent because that's time I could be spending at home with my kids or nurturing my daughter. Right. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate, but I think that 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 actually pursuing this dream that I've always wanted has made me a better mom. It's made me a better mom. And um, it's actually given me joy that I can take back to my kids and, and nurture my kids with.
0: I would 100% agree with that. I think that's so important that they that kids see us do things that we're passionate about and that we care about. And um, then, you know, like you say, afterwards, being able to come back to your kids and say, you know, I got to do something that's really important to me for an hour. And that fills my cup. You know, that fills my cup in a way that other things don't. Um, And so and then we can come back to the kids and and say, you know, now it's now it's your turn. And now, you know, with a full cup, I can I can provide for you or I can I know I've accomplished this and now I can sit and and really focus on you and not, you know, as you were saying earlier, you know, with the constant struggle and, the you know, always when you're always when you always keep moving. Or feel like you have to keep moving. I struggle with that right now with the with a little one. When she needs a little extra time to fall asleep, I'm always sort of like halfway already trying to do something else. And if I can, you know, if I can fill my cup, then you know, when she needs that extra time, I can give it to her because I've already done, you know, other things that um, make me happy. So I I I absolutely agree with the idea. What you know, what you were saying that that helps you um be a a better mom, actually, but it's hard to then have to explain that or to 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 defend that because that takes time away from you know your your ability to focus on your work and on your on raising your children,
2: yeah, absolutely, and I think as mothers, we already feel this guilt,
1: yes, for, for
2: leaving our children, right, or like being in pursuit of something that we care about, um the constant negotiation of work life, home life. Um, and, and, and I agree with you completely about constantly having to defend it, right. To say like, this is actually good for, for, for them because I've been in situations where I've constantly had to say like, no, you don't understand. Like, this is actually something that's like helping me, me give to my kids and fill my kids up. Right. And nurture them. But also them seeing us work, seeing them in pursuit as like my daughter in particular, like her seeing me in pursuit of a goal or a dream, it matters and it means something.
1: Yeah, I can I can relate to that, too, because um, it's kind of a running joke on this podcast, but my long, lengthy dissertation process Um, there were so many times where I just really wanted to throw in the towel because it just took me a lot longer than I had expected. I'd been this like really, like I said, good student. I like the good grades and this dissertation would just really threw threw me for a loop because it was something I'd never done before. And it just, you know, I look back because we have, I don't know if you remember, but we have like little forms we have to fill out about our progress on the dissertation. And every year they'd send me another one and it would be like, you know, how are you? And every year for like four years, I'd be like, well, I think I'm almost done. I think I'm almost done. And so I have like four years of these uh, internal reviews about like my progress. And my kids saw that, you know, and um, actually my son... bless his heart, but even wrote a little essay about the person he admires. And it was me, <laughs> which That's is kind so of, cool. it was like, I was like actually really surprised, but he just said that, you know, he watched me and he saw me and that I never gave up, even though I really, really wanted to. And I mean, it's true. It took me like, almost 10 years. Um, and I really didn't know at some points if I'd be done, but I think that's like, a, I think that's a worthwhile and valuable message, um, to children to see the struggle. But I do feel the pull as well because, uh, most of my family members are also, you know, um, I have some educated folks, definitely some educators, uh, in the field, but I come from like that very, um, you know, the article, William White's article talks about discourses and, you know, the discourse is about maternity and being a good mom. And how can you be a good mom if you are, you know, grading papers and trying to nurse a baby on the other, you know what I mean? So I felt like it's, I felt that push and pull. And of course, everyone was very, very proud when I finally finished, but um, it's, you know, there's a lot of mixed emotions there too. So um, that's very relatable as well
0: yeah I think the the way that the article talked about how um academic life and motherhood are both uh, institutions that sort of demand your your constant availability mm-hmm. um that really spoke to me um that was really something that resonated with me and I don't think that that's necessarily always a good thing like I think that we currently have this ideal of motherhood um, where, yeah, where that's like a thing, like you're supposed to, you're expected to be constantly available. And sometimes Erin and I were talking about this beforehand a little bit. I remember when my mom went back to work when I was like seven or eight um, and that she worked from home, um, but she worked in an office with a closed door. And I remember that closed door and that was a little bit of a sting. Um, It was kind of hard for me at first to see that closed door and to know that my mom was behind it and I wasn't able to get in there. Um, But I don't think that that hurt me in the long run. And I think, you know, I think my kids can really benefit from, you know, just things like patience and learning that, you know, I'm not available right now, but I will be soon. And so I personally think that that's probably, um, you know, a good lesson for kids to learn. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, in a lot of ways, if we're helping sort of reshape or, you know, helping people you know really rethink how we're thinking about motherhood and what it means to be a good mother um that's a that's a useful thing to do too that's important work to do too
2: yeah absolutely and we are more than just mothers and i yeah. i would hate to be defined as just that right
0: very truly
2: a mother um i think it's important to know that i am a person who you know, um, is more than just a nurturer and someone who is depended
0: on by these little people. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that too. Um, that's, and that's so important. I just, you know, we were talking about this, I think of, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was, um, I was on furlough for a few weeks when the quarantine first started and I really enjoyed like spending the extra time with the kids and it's gotten a lot harder for me since I've gone back to work. Um, but at the same time, it also just sort of um, it. I really struggled during the quarantine with having that having that sort of stripped away my the the working part of my identity. Um, and I think just having that back, even though I, my days are a lot fuller, and I feel stressed out in a lot like more significant ways. It also feels that way in a good way because, it you know, it gives some of that identity back to me. And like I said, I think my kids can really learn from, you know, they ask, like, why do you have to work? And it's like, well, it's because it's something that I enjoy doing mm-hmm. um, on top of the fact that, you know, you like th- to have things and we have to pay for them. Right. <laughs> um, right. So there's, there's two, you know, there's two, um, two parts of that equation, but yeah, I try to focus on, you know, it's something that I enjoy doing and it's that, that's why it's important for me to do it. Even if that makes everybody's else, everybody else's lives a little bit harder because they have to maybe, you know, chip in a little bit more. So, it sounds like you're
1: really modeling a lot of important behaviors. Not only are you demonstrating to your kids like work is something that you can be proud of and invest in, but you're also sort of setting up some boundaries. So, Latoya, I was wondering now that you are a single parent, how has your work process changed? Where do you find the space to write and think and create?
2: Right. So, um, when my daughter's away with her father, I have time to write. Um, However, when I, when my kids are with me, I usually just write early in the mornings and during the day when we're doing um, family activities, you know, I tend to get tired. So we're talking about that. Um, But I've also, I've also seen or have bore witness to families where it works, where you have two professionals who are in academia, who are also writers um, and and have children um, balance it, and I don't know. Like I, I I I've I've seen this, and I've seen partners be supportive of each other. Um, and I'm okay with being wrong here, but I feel like a lot of it has to do with certain prescribed perceptions of what it means to be a woman that like all of us have adopted, um, and, and 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 prescribed to and. I don't know like in in these sort of like marriages or partnerships where I see from the outside looking in, right? Cuz you never know what's really going on inside a marriage unless you're there on a daily basis.
1: Very true. Right. Very so, true.
2: So from the outside looking in, I oftentimes think and and again, this is just my interpretation by way of sort of like an outsider's gaze. Is that I think that those men oftentimes see their women as full human beings. That's just my opinion. Like they see their partners as full, right?
0: And you mean in families where that works out well and where there is that sort of balance, yeah, right? Because I remember,
2: I remember when when Aaron, you were talking about endorsing a mother-led partnership or a mother led parenting style. And you right. saying that like, even in a marriage, like um, mother led parenting is something that like, like you and you've endorsed or, or have actively sort of engaged with. And I remember thinking to myself like, wow, because I think of, uh, you know, I think of partnership or marriage as a, as, as as a place where you share the responsibilities of parenting um, and I don't think I always saw, like, in terms of like the marriage. I I often saw, like, although I did engage in this mother-led parenting style, I don't think I oftentimes bought into it.
1: No, I can. I definitely. um, There's a lot to. I don't want to say unpack again, but there really is. I said no, that that's the other like night. Super
0: complex, <laughs> yeah. but and it really, really
1: is. It really is, and. I also, too, I'm like, I'm, you know, I'm a feminist, I'm a feminist scholar, but how is it that I assume, you know, I assume that I was going to have this like this very sort of um equal roles in all this, but it just seemed to me that When I had my first son, I took the reins there, and there was this. I just remember being kind of miserable, not because of my son, but just being the one that got up at two, four, six, eight, being the one that's made decisions about um, where they go to the pediatricians, where do they go to the dentist, where do they go? You know, and we talked about this a little bit in that um, mental load um, episode as well. But I feel like I've taken the reins on pretty much everything, even with uh, um, schoolwork and all that, Um, and. I don't, I feel like if maybe I asked for some assistance, it would, I would receive it. But I do feel that I've kind of, yeah, it's been completely
0: mother led. And how did I fall into this? I don't know. That's um, exactly I, you know. how I feel. That's really funny. It's. Just, I feel like the, it wasn't necessarily a conscious decision or that I was like, oh, I, you know, I really want to be doing all of these things, but it just right. sort of like fell into place that way. And partially that's because I think, you know, with some of the I think with at least like my oldest one and I'm still doing that, like I'm kind of like somewhat practicing attachment parenting a little bit. So there's a lot of like, um, baby wearing and like, you know, nursing for extended periods of time and things like that. Those things are really important to me. And then you're kind of, you, then you happen then you end up being, you know, the parent that kind of, um, has to be there a lot, uh, just because of like how the setup is. And I'm not saying that like, that's how it should be or that everybody should do it that way, but that's just sort of like how I wanted it to be. And then it, then it ended up sort of developing beyond that where, yeah, you know, you're doing the doctor's appointments and you're on, you know, and then of course, like, you know, if you take them to a couple, then you know what vaccines they've gotten and what they need next and things. And, and just like those kinds of things where, um, where all of like somehow these things fell into my court and I don't think that like, it's not like my husband and I sat down and said and divvied it up and it ended up and you know, it ended up that way. It just sort of like happened that way. Is that what you mean by mother lab parenting? Is that what you have in mind or am I missing yeah, of the term?
2: Exactly. Like this idea that women take the reins. And I, I know that that was something that my partner expected And, okay. Mm -hmm. And like, I want to like talk about race here because in my partnership, like I was always told in so many different ways that I needed to be more like a white woman. And, and so like, I remember we were getting into these bouts, these arguments where I wanted agency and he would say things like, you know, white women refuse to give up their femininity in ways that black women do. Um, and what he really meant by that was that he wanted me to be more submissive or he wanted more domination or more control. And I think that, like, like I want to be careful here because I know for a fact, given my relationships with women across sort of racial and cultural backgrounds, that these stereotypes and these perceptions, right, of what it means to be a white woman or what it means to be a Black um, woman are oftentimes um, incomplete, Right. Um, but I think that that was utilized as a way to, to try to govern me. Right. Um, and, and I remember thinking to myself, like, okay, so you're telling me that I'm supposed to work as much as I do and take care of the home and the kids and manage the bills, the finances, and then be attentive to you. Um, I mean, that's a lot. It really is. <laughs> it is a lot. Like, that's a lot. I mean, it just is. And it felt unfair. It felt unreasonable and it felt unfair. Um,
0: and- so was there anything implied in that statement that, like, you should have been doing less of? Like, was th- were you not supposed to also be working? Or is there, can you say more about that?
2: Yeah, it was that I was not supposed to be working and that my family was, was supposed to be the thing that governed everything else. And you're talking to someone who really enjoyed work. And I honestly did feel like I had something to prove in that sort of academic space. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, and, and nurturing people for me, nurturing people, like being family oriented, it comes so naturally to me. And and, and I, and it's just unfortunate that, you know, that marriage failed or, or or fell apart. But I think there are lessons here that can be learned that, that hopefully I can sort of move on and move forward and be a better person because of it. Um, I think that, I think that academia requires so much of us to where we have to negotiate, consistently negotiate, Right um who we're going to be on particular days and what we're going to do on particular days and how we're going to spend our time and and i don't think that that negotiation is something that should be happening alone like i honestly feel like that is something that should be happening through the partnership right and by way of the partnership right especially if you've got a supportive partner um, but I also, like, I relate to Erin, like, when she says that, you know, she would join committees and her partner would say, like, really? Like, right. like, I had, I mean, like, I had similar experiences where it was like, I mean, you gotta be kidding me. <laughs> um and So, so, yeah.
1: We've talked about this before. I think academic life could be and should be quite accessible to people with families, particularly mothers, um, except that we're still relying on that old white male uh, superstructure or whatever, for lack of a better word, that we were kind of talking about earlier on. Um, I've always thought that I could try to balance this with having a family. But, um, you know, we were talking a little bit about gender performativity and this idea of gender as a fiction embodied through performance, right? And white women have certain performances, I think, that are kind of expected or have been kind of represented in different cultural um spaces and films and television shows. Um, but I wondered how this performance then is different for Black women, because we have sort of like you're sort of speaking to this al- already well, but uh, this idea that there's like gendered performances, but um, we talk about a lot of the stereotypical images of Black women. So I wondered if there's a different sort of performance that Black female scholars have to play into when they are working in higher ed, um, because uh, there's a number of these um, and film representations and ideologies and discourses, um, some of them tied with this nostalgia to the service of the past, all the different stereotypes about Black women. And so is there a sense that there may be a certain type of performativity that Black women have to embody within the academy?
2: I don't think this, like, okay, so in my, and, and I, and I want to welcome being able to sort of revisit this in the future. Yes. But I don't always think that, the stereotypes are as in, as important as like the feeling that you have to counter them. And that is something that I think people of color constantly feel and women in general constantly feel right. Which is why I think we overcompensate. Right. Um, and so, you know, what oftentimes stipends this fullness of our humanity um, or the, the, the degree in which we can fully express ourselves and be full human beings has a lot to do with like the fear of, of these stereotypes, right? The constant fear of these stereotypes, and you know, there are things that like, that every woman who is in the line of work that we do experiences, and I do believe that race exas, you know, exasperates these experiences and these challenges. And so, um, and I think a lot about like students and my engagement with students. Like, so for example. Um, I remember, like, taking an approach that I had gotten from a white male of mine who was going, that was going well in his classroom and, and really sort of, like, adopting that approach and not getting the same results that he was getting, right? But I also think about, like, how much students expect us to be nurturers. Versus their expectations of like white male professors yeah. or even male professors. Like they, they right. they oftentimes expect us to be maternal toward them and they expect us to be um, these sort of gentle, patient, service-driven um, professionals. And, and I think oftentimes like I, I, it blows my mind when I see the differences, right. In terms of like. How what I get from students in comparison to what, for example, my partner at the time was getting from his students who adored and loved him um, and he could do no wrong, wrong, regardless of like things that I saw in his classroom that I thought um, was a bit questionable. And yet. <laughs> <laughs> and And yeah, and it's and it's weird because I don't think people think about people who are outside the line of work, work that we do think about just how much time it takes to to support and mentor and take care of our students.
1: Right. And they rely on a lot, um uh, they rely on us for a lot of support sometimes. And I do think it is gendered, um, because it goes both ways. I can either be the nurturer, you know, the person they come to for comfort and support, or I'm a bitch, right? Because right. you know. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, you know. <laughs> and they're not gonna say that about a male professor. I mean, you know, he might it's the same age old gender dichotomy, right? The male professor might be in command or, you know, he's strict, but oh Oh my gosh, she was kind of a bitch because she held me to yeah. a standard. Mm-hmm.
2: I've been called a bitch before on my um, avows. Of course, they like they'll like um, they'll clean it up and write you know expletive, but it's very clear that the student has called you a bitch. Uh, but yeah, absolutely, absolutely.
1: And so then that fear of that, I think, I think that's a really good point that you made. It's like shaping how we respond or react when nothing actually has even really happened but we're kind of thinking and mulling over those types of stereotypes about gender and in your case possibly race or you know things like that so it's like i think that's a really telling statement that you just gave us
2: it's such a hypersensitivity it really is and i don't know the answer in terms of how we um work around it but it's there And I think it's important to call it out.
1: Wow, this has just been an amazing conversation so far. LaToya, thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself and your work today. Uh, We're kind of at the time in the podcast where we like to share what we're reading. And so I am actually going to be honest. I'm on a little bit of a reading hiatus because I am now teaching a class online. Judith, did you want to start off by sharing what you're reading? And
0: maybe LaToya, you could follow that up. So I am kind of in the same situation that you are in. Um, Just with having gone back to work, it's gotten very difficult for me to actually get any reading done. I was doing really well during the quarantine. And right now I'm stuck on um, T.C. Boyle's Tortilla Curtain. Um, I picked that up a while ago. I really enjoyed a couple of his his other books that I've read in the past. Um, And this one, for some reason, feels dated. It's really weird. It's about, you know... Uh, it deals with matters of immigration and um, and things like that, and it it's from the '90s, and it it is a book that often gets assigned in classes, um, but it just is not really um, grabbing me as much as I as I have been by Boyle's other novels in the past so hopefully I won't be telling you the same thing still next week but um, (laughs) I very well might be because I'm not making a lot of progress um Natalia are you reading anything fun
2: yeah so I just finished um Seven Guitars by August Wilson I've been reading a lot of plays lately so I read that and um I also although this was hard this was a difficult read for me I um I'm I'm working through Toni Morrison's Paradise. Oh wow, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um I think it's just the multiple um character focal points that's like causing some some reading ruptures for me, but it's a it's an interesting read. Um so alongside reading that, I'm also reading um Breathe by Amani Perry, which is addressed to her black sons and it's really um Talking about like what it means to be a black mother of of boys, in you know a country that continues to sanction you know police killings of unarmed black people, um, that reading has been really good. I always I, I love Amani's writing, uh, and and so like that's the piece that I've been working with within the last couple of days is is breathe, um, and it's just so good.
1: Well, thanks for sharing that. Um, I think that's really important. And so, kind of in relationship to that, I found I have tested this out. So, I promise it's real. Um, One of my friends that's also a reader shared this bot. Um, So, you text this uh, number, it's 409 404 0403. And I'll put that in the comments for this episode. But it's actually a really neat um, service, which when you text it, it sends you a message back and it offers all selections uh, across the genres by African American authors. And you can uh, put in a number, It will say, well, what genre do you want? And it will give you a selection. Um, So if you want to find a sci-fi piece by an African American author, you hit in like number three, it sends you back and then it links you out to where you can actually find and purchase the book at more of a small uh, retailer. So rather than the big box store or the big bookstores, if any of those are left. So I tried it out. It was pretty cool. I tried short fiction and I tried um, sci-fi, and it gave me two selections that I wasn't aware of. And so I know as we continue dialogues about mothering, about sharing as scholars, um, and trying to embrace other points of view, I think this is a great service for any um, listener that maybe doesn't know a lot about African-American literature and doesn't know where to start but wants to get started. So kind of keeping in mind LaToya's suggestion as well as uh, this, that maybe make for a good summer reading list. So um, I thought this was a really good episode. And LaToya, I just really want to thank you for being a very first guest. Um, again, this is scholar, writer, and mother, LaToya Falk. Thanks so much for joining us today. If I may be so bold, perhaps we can invite you back again in a few months.
2: Yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure to talk with you all.
1: Uh, if anyone else wants to get a hold of us, they can email us at Podcast at gmail, and you would remind us of that awesome Instagram presence the again. Insta-
0: the Instagram account is at phdandparenting. All right.
1: Thanks, everyone, for listening.